Hey everybody, this is Gad Saad on The Sad Truth. Today I have another fantastic guest uh, with me who's a fellow Regnery author. He's got a book coming out, How and How Not to Be Happy, which coincides with my forthcoming book, also with Regnery, on how to live the good life. Hey Jay, how you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Uh, okay, so let, for, for folks who may not know you, Jay, I'll just uh, mention a few uh, items from your bio. You're a professor of government and philosophy at UT Austin, University of Texas Austin, where I will be in early May giving a few lectures and meeting some nice and cool people. You are the author of many books. You're a philosopher by training. Uh, some of the books you've written, The Resurrection of Nature, The Nearest Coast of Darkness, A Vindication of the Politics of Virtues, True Tolerance, Liberalism and the Necessity of Judgment, The Revenge of Conscience, The Line Through the Heart, Natural Law as Fact, Theory, and Sign of, let me see here, I, it went over line, of contradiction on the on the meaning of sex. Oh, maybe we need to talk about this, given that I'm an evolutionist. Uh, uh, you have several books that are commentaries on Thomas uh, Aquinas. This one is the Treatise on Law. And then, of course, your one that's forthcoming in early March, How and How Not to Be Happy. Did I cover some of the main points? Yes, you did. All right. Okay, so let, get us going. Tell us the central premise of your book, and then we could drill down on topics that might interest us. What's the central theme? <laughs> well, there's more than one central premise. You know, I think that most people have some share in happiness, but not very many people are simply happy. Most people have some understanding of happiness, but they don't necessarily know what it is that they know. There are little fragments of insight that they have, and they haven't connected the dots. Um, I, rather than relying on survey research, which I think is very misleading because, it, you know, people give answers and they and you, you ask the question differently. They, they, they tell you something different. Are you satisfied with your life? Yes. Are you happy? No. Rather than relying on that, rather than relying on brain scans because the pleasure center of the brain, that's pleasure. That's not the same as happiness or fulfillment. What I, what I do is, a, is an approach where you take common sense, but you cross-examine it. You use common sense to cross-examine other common sense in order to help people to connect the dots, to dig up what they really know, um, and uh, but may not be aware of knowing, and to put together a picture of what uh, of what happiness involves. And then, so I go through some of the some of the uh, some of the alternatives people think that that happiness lies. Nobody will admit to thinking that happiness lies in power. But in fact, a lot of people do think that it lies in, in power under another name. They say responsibility, being able to manage others, you know, that sort of thing, having a higher position. People think that it lies in wealth. They think it lies in pleasure. They think it lies in this. They think it lies in that. And I sort of shoot down all of those things. But, and this is part of what I mean, Saad, by uh, God, I'm sorry. God, God yeah. By, <laughs> by, by, uh, by, uh, uh, cross-examining uh, common opinion in even in an error there has to be some little grain of truth in it right otherwise the error would never be plausible so what you try to do you don't just you don't just shoot something down what you say is what is it that's true about this that makes it plausible can we pull that out and can we make use of that and I you know so I try to do that so when you're trying to test a particular folk psychology wisdom as to what is a, a trajectory for happiness are you then relying on empirical science to either prove or disprove that particular nugget of folk psychology? What is the method by which you're either confirming or, or disconfirming a particular uh, premise? Well, this, this uh, cross-examination of common opinion really is 
the classical philosophical method. Okay. And I would say that properly understood, philosophy is the you know the highest arch of the sciences. Um, now, what a lot of people mean by science is a lot of survey research. You ask people, what makes you happy? And you collate all the answers. And I think that that can be often be very misleading. If on the one hand, I mean, I make some use of statistics and uh, survey research. If, uh, if on the one hand, you find that in neighborhoods that are a very wealthy people, highly competitive, the suicide rate is very high, I think that tells us something. If you ask somebody, did that new car make you happy? Uh, that's much less likely <laughs> right. to tell you something. Yeah, well, I, so, I, so I'm very right. sparing with the statistics. Yeah, I was. Uh, you mean you mentioned about uh, does the car make you happy in in a, in a section of my forthcoming book, which I'm still assiduously working on to try to get it in time. I, I have to submit my first draft by end of uh, March. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 and uh, so. Uh, when Regnery reached out to me to to invite you on, and I said, you know, it's only because it's Regnery authors that I'm going to say yes because I'm really I really have the gun to my head in terms of getting my own book out. Uh, but but in any case, uh, one of the things that I talk about, uh, and actually some of the pioneering research in that field comes from one of my former uh, psychology professors at Cornell. His name is Tom Gilovich, where he looked at the uh what makes you happier, the consumption of material goods or the consumption of experiences. And uh, as you may uh, presume, uh, it's a lot more experiences that ultimately have a you know a big bang for the buck than stuff. Than stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What now? What do you think of this? It seems. It seems to me, and I make this argument, you know, in the book, that um, there are a lot of things that contribute to happiness, but they but they don't contribute unless you know what to do with them. For instance, um, uh, friendship is you're not going to be happy if you don't have friends. We're social creatures. We only flourish in community with others. But on the other hand, you have to know how to be a friend. You have to have the virtues yeah. uh, that make it possible to be a friend. A certain amount, I don't want to dis wealth completely, a certain amount of, of wealth is necessary. You have to eat. You have to clothe your clothe yourself and your children. You know, you you have you need you need money for things, but you have to have the virtues that enable you to know how to use it when it's for what it's necessary when you've got enough you know it's the same with it's the same with everything so it isn't just a matter of having this even not, i i don't even just mean material things but things like friends of having this or having this or having this but it's a matter of the uh, of the moral character of the virtues that, that that enable you to know what to do what do you think of that uh, I mean, absolutely, right? Because I mean, I, I I could have a general idea of I love to eat good food, but if I live alone and I don't know how to cook well, uh, <laughs> right? N knowing that that's the ultimate objective doesn't mean that I'll know how to get there if I don't have the right recipe. So I think that's what you're saying, right? We could have in the abstract a sense of where we want to go, but if we don't know how to put it, in, I think uh, was it Aristotle who called it? Is it uh, phronesis? Is that is that the term? The uh, practical mm -hmm. wisdom, right? Practical so. Wisdom. Exactly. So, so, so I, I can have in the abstract an understanding of what are the steps A, B, C that I need to uh, implement to achieve happiness. But without the, you know, the detail, God is in the details. If I don't know those details, then I'm not going to do well. Speaking of God, now you, I, I read in, in preparing for this interview, I read a bit about your, your background and uh, you came, I guess, late to I guess being considered a religious person, I don't know how late, but you're now a practicing Catholic. Do you place a lot of your arguments within a 
divine framework or can can one be happy void of god um well okay i think that well first of all i i even promise my readers because a lot of people are god phobic you know <laughs> they're they're frightened they're they're scared of religion and so i even promise my readers up front i'm not going to talk about all that god stuff until the end of the book <laughs> but you have to talk about it eventually because the greatest happiness that's available in this life Let's be frank. It is fragmentary. It's incomplete. It is vulnerable. Uh, even if you're doing everything right, you 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 may look as as uh, one of the one of Marcus Tullius Cicero was once asked by one of his friends about happiness, and uh, and he and he says the virtuous man will be happy. And uh, Brutus asks him. He says even if he's being tortured and on the rack. Uh, if it's, it's that's hard to believe, right? The the we everything that we have in this life is vulnerable, and there's not just that. Even if you have everything and everything is going right, you say, "Is this all there is?" Right. There's something more. You you're howling at the moon. It seems that you want something that isn't to be found in anything in this created world, and I think what that what that's really about is our longing for something that is literally out of this world. We're talking about uh, the creator of the world. We're talking about God. So I do talk about that at the end, yes. But if um, if some reader is God-phobic and wants to stop before he gets to those last couple of chapters, I still <laughs> hope to have something to offer him. You know how that is. Right, of course. Uh, you know, and, and so to, to link it to some of my own uh, uh, thinking regarding happiness, since I'm also writing a book on it, one of the things that I argue in my book, and I'm, I guess I'm giving a little bit of a preview for, for our viewers, is that... And I'm hardly the first one to argue that, you know, a, a good life is one that has purpose and meaning. What makes me happy when I wake up in the morning, other than the fact that I am dispositionally happy, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to have been born with the right combination of genes that make me have, you know, I have generally a sunny disposition. Uh -huh. uh, that doesn't mean that I'm not. I can tell that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, but so that's the genes part. And, and even, you know, we, we can maybe move the dial a bit to the right or to the left, but I may be here on the dial and you may be here, but then about 50% of it is due to genes, but the other 50% is coming from all sorts of other things. Now, one of those things that's not part of the genes is finding something that truly gives you purpose and meaning every day. Now, in my case, uh, my work, uh, so the fact that, oh, today, now I'm going to speak to Jay. Earlier today, I spoke to Dennis Prager, another very religious man. Uh, then I'm going to be working on my book. Then I'm going to be writing on a research paper. And each of those things makes me kind of, you know, uh, uh, put my hands together in great anticipation. Now, some elements of my uh, academic career today I find to be great drudgery. Uh, the the administration aspects, the oh yeah, the grading, the student whining, the all of the stuff that I talk in the parasitic mind, all of the idea pathogens that have proliferated in, on university campuses. So that even someone like me, who's who's literally, it's in my genes to be a professor, I'm starting to think that it may not be my most authentic life to be spending all of my intellectual capital in academia, which pains me greatly to say, because I never imagined doing anything else. Now, I, I'd like to... So, I understand. Exactly. Exactly. So, so I think as long as I'm always able to find a vehicle for my creativity that allows me to instantiate my purpose and meaning, I'm, one, I'm well on my way to climbing Mount Happiness. Well, what do you think of that theory? Well, I, I, I have a whole chapter on whether happiness lies in, uh, in meaning or commitment. And uh, I think that in one sense it does. Everything, everything that you've said I think is true. 
On the other hand, um, many people who write about this seem to write about meaning in a, in a sort of a relativistic way. It doesn't really matter whether the meaning is true, whether it has any merit in it. Some people will say, you know, you just have to find meaning. One, one, uh, one author, uh, one psychologist who wrote about this said, uh, we found that, uh, that it helped some of our experimental subjects to watch episodes of the Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that we're, really, that we're really getting in touch there. If somebody finds meaning in something that is objectively meaningless or, or is a delusion, then I would say that even if he feels good, we would have to say that he's not living a happy life. You know, there's a difference between having a good time and having a good life, as as uh, Mortimer Adler once put it. And I, 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 I'm not saying that is something that I think he would disagree with, but it's something that would I would really want to add. And I, I push pretty hard about that in that uh, chapter on meaning. What led you? I mean, you're not you're not a happiness researcher. I think you refer to the fact that there's a whole kind of happiness cottage <laughs> industry. But but you didn't come from you know you're not you're not the Martin Seligman and uh, you know you're not Jonathan Haidt who wrote you know book about no. happiness. So you, you weren't coming from that ecosystem. What made you think you know what I have some important things to say about happiness? Let me take a crack at it. Well, there were a couple of things from different directions, and I'm sure it was this way with you too, right? The the one one experience of well, for one thing, I just I just wrote a commentary on Thomas Aquinas's treatise on happiness and ultimate purpose, so I'm doing, you know, something like 700 pages, 800 pages, line by line, going through this, and uh, and um, but I thought when I finished, this is. Um, even though I try to write everything, and I'm sure you do too, so that it's accessible to everyday readers, still that's the kind of book that mostly just scholars or, or students are going to read. And uh, so I wanted to I wanted to reach a broader audience, and I was especially impelled to do that because of the experience of teaching my own students. You know, once I taught a, a freshman course, I, I co-taught it with a with a colleague of mine. It was on uh, happiness and the meaning of life. This was years ago. We just we just taught it because we thought it would be a, a good introduction. We had them read some of the great thinkers, and um, uh, one uh, on one occasion, I I said to the students, "Now this is a sort of a this is a sort of a drill that Aristotle uses. All right, he says um, he says, um, well, when you when you act, do you act for the sake of some good? Sure, sure, you know. So okay, I'll say. So what did what did you do this morning? I got out of bed. Why did you get out of bed? Uh, you know." Uh, uh, well, to start the day. Why do you want to start the day? You know, everything led to something else. I said, okay, is there something that you do for the sake of it, for its own sake and not just for the sake of something else? Just like Aristotle's students, they all say, happiness. <laughs> and I say, right. okay, what's happiness? Right. Now, what I expected, and this had happened other times I'd taught, was just what happened to Aristotle. They all give different answers. Some say happiness lies in honor, it lies in, lies in pleasure, lies in friends, lies in this, lies in that. They broke my heart. The first half dozen, the refreshment, the first half dozen students merely gave variations on the answer. Happiness is nothing but freedom from pain and suffering. Wow. They could not give me. I, I pushed. I said, you're telling me what it isn't. What is it? And they just paraphrased. It's freedom from pain and suffering. And I thought, Wow. There's something radically wrong here. My guess was, 
you know, there's something philosophers call the hedonistic paradox, that if you pursue pleasure as your goal in life, you won't even have any. Uh, that's the wrong way. Pleasure comes as a byproduct of pursuing something else that's, right. you know, that's worthwhile. And um, that that the hedonistic paradox used to kick in and burn people when they got into their maybe 40s. And they saw, hey, this is this is empty. And I think it's kicking in younger and younger because we have a hedonistic culture. So I thought I, I thought I really need to write about this. Wow. Is this your is this your first uh, book targeting the masses? Oh, no. Um, I uh, what we can't what we can't not know. Oh, I wrote about net basically about natural law. I'm trying to I'm trying to give a rational basis for the 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 uh, common moral sense of the plain person um, on the meaning of sex, which you mentioned. Right. Uh, was motivated similar similarly because you know my students are not not not, not happy in this, right. and uh, uh, I tried to make sense of what what human sexuality is really all about, and um, and uh, this you know there have been others like that. I, I like I said before, I try to make everything accessible to everybody, but you still have to spin some books more to some audiences yeah. and some to others. Some are some are just inherently less accessible. I mean, I have. I've tried, I'm sorry, to, right. I've tried to make them as accessible as I can. Yeah, I mean, I've written both academic books, uh, and for our viewers, an academic book is not a textbook. A textbook is intended, you know, to, right. for mass proliferation to the same right. undergrad, right. whereas an academic book is a scholarly, you know, treatise. Uh, and I've I've done a few academic books, which I found very pleasurable. Uh, but you know, once I got into the writing for the mass audiences, there's something that is uniquely intoxicating about being able to reach a much broader audience you know in in the parasitic mind my last book i talk about what i call the garage band effect so that you know, <laughs> so the idea is that if you, you know you're a struggling artist and you know you're playing only in, in in your garage in front of your girlfriend and your your mother well that's very laudable because you you know you're you're struggling for your art but if you then get a number one billboard hit and you start playing at Wembley Stadium, well, you've sold out. I despise that idea because the whole point of being a musician is to, to have as many people as possible read your stuff. So this idea and that we have in academia whereby mm -hmm. you are rewarded for being, being, uh, for being obscure, for writing to five other people, four of whom are your editor and three reviewers and your mom, is not something that's laudable. It's actually quite uh, sad that most academic papers will be cited, you know, zero to two times in the entirety of their of their tenure, right? So, yeah. so to be able to now communicate, even let's say in this medium, the fact that I've got this show, I could I could open my computer, do a seven minute monologue that will be viewed by a hundred thousand people. What's intoxicating about it is not that it's a narcissistic, you know, ego stroke that oh look, people are you know I'm famous. It's because. You and I are in the business of doing two things. First, creating new knowledge, but then disseminating new knowledge. Yes. And if yes. I could disseminate it to 100,000 people, I'd be an idiot to prefer to say no to that, to write a peer-reviewed paper that will be read by 11 people. Yeah, I know. I agree with you completely. I've, I, there is an attitude among a lot of academics that if you write something that people can read, you're slumming. Exactly, exactly um, right. Now, sometimes they'll make an exception. If you're slumming in a high prestige, uh, in a high prestige popular journal, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or something like that, that's okay. But if you just write a book that everybody can read, that's not okay. Um, you know, there's high, but but still, they sort of sneer if you're if one one colleague that I know, and I, by the way, I wasn't dissing the Wall Street Journal there, um, the the um, but that's just the attitude. One uh, uh, colleague of mine. 
wrote something once and uh, he got uh, he got a reply from the external reviewers when he submitted it to a journal and one of them said this is very well written but we have an obligation to the discipline <laughs> in other words it has to be obscure right. uh, you have to load it down with footnotes make it impenetrable now I, I didn't used to really understand this completely I, I thought well I'm a uh, I'm a scholar and I'm a and I'm a teacher and a teacher was, I thought it was sort of a sort of a sideline. And um, and I came to understand that the way my mind works is 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 that my, I, have a, I have a teacher's mind. I, I'm not claiming to be necessarily to be a great or a wonderful teacher, but it's how my mind works. Some people will say, look, until I understand it, I can't teach it. With me, it's almost the other way around. I would never teach something I don't understand. But the way that I come to understand it is by thinking, how would I teach that? What, what do you, th I mean, well, I guess maybe I'll, I'll begin by giving you my theory and then you tell me if you want to okay. add to it. I think that part of the reflex that ac academics have with the sort of faux profundity, you know, you've got to confuse them in order to be impressive, really stems from a epistemological insecurity, right? So, you know, you know, the physicists out there and the mathematicians, I have a mathematics background, you know, they are prestigious because they write in a language that all the rest of the great unwashed don't understand. Now, if I am in the humanities or maybe in philosophy or maybe in some other, one of those other, you know, fields, the only way that I can also get my ego strokes validated is if I can write in a as impenetrable manner as the physicist, right? If you don't understand the, the language of mathematics, the first word, the first symbol, you're already lost, right? So how about we now create a new faux field called postmodernism where I will engage in a complete concatenation of random gibberish, but since it will confuse everyone, therefore this must be a proxy for me saying something profound. What do you think yes, of this yes, that's right. Have you ever seen the postmodernist essay generator? Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Oh, it's it's wonderful. Every time you hit the button, it just it just randomly concatenates all of these all these trendy phrases and things and says something that looks like it probably might maybe mean something <laughs> deep, but it means nothing whatsoever. It's random. Uh, yeah, I, I I think that's right. I think there's another aspect to this insecurity. And um, it's developmental. You know, an awful lot of people who go into scholarship, who go into university work, who go into teaching. Um, now, they're, I, don't get me wrong, they're, they're smart people. But when they were young, they were nerds. Yes. And they may not have been popular with the other kids. And so as a defense, they, they teach themselves to look down on other people. 100% correct. 100% correct. And, and so in, it, it, they pride themselves on being independent. But in fact, they're even more conformist than most people. But what they're conforming to, what they crave, is the approval of other scholars. Yeah. They can be obsessive about this, and they, and you don't get the approval of other scholars by you know by by being uh, by being understood by ordinary people. It has to be something that only other scholars can understand. You know, I've I've made the exact same point that you've made, but using different imagery and different metaphors. So I argue that look, when we when we hire Navy SEALs. We're not hiring them based on them being obese or being, uh, you know, slouches <laughs> or being uh, cowards, right? So right. we are choosing the, the selection bias is that they better be physically fit. They better have honor. They better have courage. And so I argue that in an ideal world, academics should be intellectual Navy SEALs, right? They're courageous. They're warriors on the intellectual battlefront. They, they are brawny, whereas most are what I call the invertebrate castrati class, 
which is That's exactly right. Which, by the way, is exactly why I live kind of in a fractured schizophrenic world where I receive tons of private emails from professors saying, Dr. Saad, you're my hero. Shh, please don't tell anybody that I support you. Whereas most of the super cool kids at the faculty lounge parties look down at me when I, you know, I, I use humor or satire. Whereas, of course, I can be just as austere and professorial. Right? I could go to Stanford and give a talk at their business school, but I can also engage in self-mockery and dep deprecation and so on. But because they are insecure, because of the developmental mechanisms that you came up with, they weren't brawny, the star quarterback then they now turn and become the bullies within the intellectual environment. Yeah, I no, I think that that's I think that that's exactly right. Uh, and they uh, they they there are a number of delusions are involved. There's the delusion I, I, that I mentioned that that they are independent thinkers when in fact they 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 conform utterly. There's the and there's the there's the uh, delusion that they have courage when, as you point out, they're, they're really spineless and cowardly. Yeah. Cowardly. Um, there is the delusion that they are seekers after knowledge and are not interested in in power or status, uh, but in fact they you know they they um, profess a, a certain kind of very narrow professionalism. I've got to get stuff published. I've got to get a lot of citations. I've got to do this. Takes the place of actually looking for knowledge. Totally. You know, finding finding out things and publishing them ought to be a means to knowledge. It ought to, it, it it shouldn't be replacing knowledge but it does it's it um some sociologists have called this the uh, the displacement of ends by means exactly right you know so let's link it to 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 the topic of your book happiness so for me i'm a purist when i engage in research it truly is because some problem has captivated me and to a fault to my career i don't give a damn whether I, for the good of my career, I should pursue that topic or not. So, for example, the idea that you should always publish within a narrow area of specialization, within a narrow set of disciplines, because, you know, you're a professor of philosophy, only publish in philosophy journals. I'm a professor at the business school. I should only publish in these types of journals, whereas I've published in economics, in marketing, in psychology, in evolutionary theory, in medicine, in bibliometrics, and I've often been told by universities who were keen on whisking me away from my current university that it's too bad that I'm so interdisciplinary because it appears as though I lack focus. Whereas That's right. Right? Because I'm all right. over the place. So rather than yes. thinking that, that it's great to be a broad thinker, it's actually viewed with derision. I've seen I've seen the same problem sometimes when graduate students are considering research projects. Gee, I'd like to do my dissertation on this on this, which bridges these two fields. I say it's fine that you want to do that. If this is if this is if you think this is really an important question, you're burning to get the answer to this. Do it. But if you're if it's bridging two fields, you'd better learn to package it. Yeah. So that it sounds like one or the other. Because if it if it um, if it sounds like it's it's linking together two things, a lot of people will say, "Well, what is he? It's not really this. It's you know, I'm this, and it's not really this. It's not really that. It you fall between the two stools." You know, I you mentioned um, um, my philosophy background. Look, I don't want to travel under false premises. My PhD wasn't actually in philosophy; it was in uh, it was in political science, okay. but. 
but uh, political philosophy is done in two places. It's done in philosophy departments. It's done. It's done in uh, in political science departments in a usually a different way. And uh, what I'm interested in is the ethical foundations of of uh, social and political order. So that drives you toward philosophy, and it's actually what I it's actually what I do now. Do you? Uh, I mean, n- not to kind of vulgarize the whole process, but if I told you. Give me your top five heroes, guys that you could hang out with over a dinner that are philosophers going back to time immemorial. Who are the guys you're inviting to dinner, Jay? Well, I, I'm I'm I'll, I'll, I'm going to try to avoid men- mentioning some uh, contemporary ones because some of them are pretty darn prickly, and I might enjoy talking with them, but but who knows whether they'd even so his- historical them. historical historical um, Aristotle would have to be yes, there, of course. Okay. Um, uh, Plato, Socrates, yes. Thomas Aquinas. He's 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 my my hero. This is right. this is uh, why he's he's. I think he's uh, I I think he's he's one of the two or three. I would actually say number one minds in uh, minds in history. But uh, and I'm interested in um, I'm interested in people who have been trying to revive those ways of thinking, not as a bunch of dusty dusty history of ideas stuff. But as a live option, this is a way of thinking that is in that is in challenge and contradiction to a lot of the way that we think today. Uh, he, now he's the uh, uh, Saint Thomas. He, he was a saint, right? Saint Thomas Aquinas. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he's the uh, first mover guy, right? Correct. Uh, yes. Yes. He. One of his arguments for the existence of God depends on the argument to a first, first mover. Exactly uh-huh. right. Uh, but now he also has written. Now, because I'm, I'm thinking of, I recently had a guest on my show who's a historian of happiness. And if you don't know his work, uh, you might want to check it out. Even though your book is now in okay. print, and uh, I, I'm, his last name escapes me. He's a well. He's a okay. historian. He wrote a biography of happiness, going back to. You know many traditions through many eras, and of course the ancient Greeks, and then you know Thomas Aquinas, you know play a, a big part in that. Now I think I don't know if no, I think it was Saint Augustine who said that the only path through happiness is you know in the afterlife and knowing God or something. Right? I mean, didn't both? I think that's the only. I think that's the only complete happiness that leaves nothing left, nothing further right. to be desired. Um, what what we speak of as happiness in this life is always incomplete. It's fragmentary, it's vulnerable, you know, like I said. So you can sort of speak of the worldly wise man's view of happiness. You 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 have to have virtue and and good fortune. And you can see the obvious drawbacks of that because what if you don't have good fortune? Uh, now, because uh, you met, you said incomplete, and I know that there's a dichotomy in your book that you bring up between incomplete happiness and complete happiness. Can you tell us what that dichotomy is all about? Well, yeah, that's what we've just been what just been talking about in this in this world. Um, uh, so it's a theological even, even distinction. The highest, even the highest use of our highest power doesn't take us all the way to what we long for, what we want. I think. I mean, t- look, our our highest power is the mind. Right. You know, you 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 want to deliberate well. You want to know the truth. Even somebody who doesn't think of himself as as philosophical is a sort of a philosopher in a way. Insofar as he says, "Well, what does it all mean? What is the truth? What what?" A dog doesn't ask that question. 
A reptile doesn't ask that question. Human beings do. Uh, you can. It, you don't have to be a, a professional philosopher. They sometimes they ask it the least. You, you, a bricklayer wants to know that. Uh, a carpenter, a welder, like I used to be, wants to know that. Uh, people people want to know. Now. You aren't going to fully know that until you see the face of God. I, I don't mean a physical face, but until you perceive God as he is in himself. In this life, we, you know, we take in knowledge we use for through our, our sensory organs. You can't see God physically. You're not going to attain that knowledge. And you, you need it, you, the, our powers need to be supernaturally elevated. So, so I think this isn't going to happen except for those who, who, have, um, who have become friends of God in this life. So when and, you when and and receive that grace in the next when you said uh, that you know the the God stuff is left towards the end of the book, uh, is that where the distinction between complete and incomplete uh, happiness comes in? Where you're making that argument that the only way through complete happiness is is an understanding God and so on? Yes, the the discussion of complete happiness and 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 uh, its connection with God is at the end of the book, but right at the Right at the end of the part of the book that's just before that, I do make the case that the happy, the 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 best happiness that it's available in this life is incomplete, even if you don't yet know what complete is. And now that right. sort of raises a question because some people would stay there. They would say, "Yeah, all right, all right, my happiness in this life is incomplete. Leave me alone. Nobody's going to be completely happy. You just gotta settle." Right. Right. Now that's an interesting question. And some people say, if you keep talking about complete happiness, you're just going to make me miserable. Right. I, I had a student who got very angry in class because we were talking about, about Aristotle and about Thomas Aquinas and about whether, whether there is such a thing as complete happiness. And she said, it's never, it's never complete. You're never happy. You can't, you can't ever be happy. You know, you just, you just, you just aren't ever fully satisfied, and that's the way it is. And she was getting angrier and angrier. I, I, I wasn't being uh, um, uh, provocative in the wrong sense. I, 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 um, but I think that she'd pitched her tent on a plane of salt, and um, and uh, this was her own happiness that was that was speaking here. So she was trying to make herself happier by 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 not wanting complete happiness very much anymore and that doesn't work we have this longing built in now you know uh look i don't want to i don't want to um i don't want to sound too abstract but to me this is a matter of everyday experience um we want something that isn't to be found in this world now even aristotle knew um or even an evolutionary biologist knows that there is nothing in us that isn't for something. Why do we have hunger? Well, there is food, and we need nutrition. Why do we want friends? Well, there is such a thing as friendship. If we have a, a if we have a hunger, an appetite for something that is not found in this world, right? That that either it, it's not plausible, it's not reasonable that 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 longing would be for nothing. So it must be for something that is beyond the order of this world. So that. Let, that's, I think I don't think you need a Bible to know that. Although I think the Bible is helpful in other ways. So let me offer a an earthly explanation for what you yeah. just said, uh, sure. where I'm going to apply evolutionary uh, thinking to an understanding of religion. So when you so an evolutionist can perfectly study uh, uh, evolution 
uh, uh, religion and ask exactly the question that you 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 intimated, which is you know why does it exist, right? The ultimate Darwinian why, right? So in the same way that I can ask the the following question: Why does romantic jealousy exist? You know why are men sexually territorial? Well, because it solves the problem of paternity uncertainty. Men didn't evolve with DNA paternity tests, and therefore, since we're a biparental species. Uh, I want to make sure that if I'm going to spend the next 18 years mm-hmm. investing in someone, it better be my own child, right? So mm-hmm. being a biparental species and having paternity uncertainty ensures that it makes perfect sense, perfect adaptive sense for uh, sexual territoriality to evolve as part of men's behavioral, cognitive, and emotional strategies. Okay, so now let's apply that same lens to religion. Well, there are very earthly reasons why you'd want to be religious. For example, uh, uh, someone that I know well, David Sloan Wilson, who's an evolutionary biologist by training, but has written about uh, the evolutionary roots of religion, argues in his book, Darwin's Cathedral, that groups that have score higher on religiosity will outlive groups that don't because of greater communality, greater cohesion, greater likelihood of cooperation. So very earthly mechanisms cause the one who scores high on religiosity to outlive the one who doesn't score high. So so in a sense, if I, I just finish the point, I'll, I'll see the floor to you. Yeah, yeah. So in the same way that, you know, the old Pascal's wager, he offered sort of a game theoretic argument for why it makes sense to believe. It doesn't rest on whether God exists or not. Whether he exists or not is immaterial to the argument that it makes sense to be a believer. What do you, are, are you at all uh, sympathetic to that argument or no? <laughs> I have to, I have to say I'm not. Here's why. Why? Here's why. In the, well, in the first place, remember we were talking about meaning and commitment earlier, and I and I and I suggested that if 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 you're basing the whole the whole uh, idea of meaning in your life on something that is in fact false, on on futility, on a delusion, uh, you can't really be considered happy. So yeah, it really does matter whether whether God is real. And I think in, in fact it matters even though the image the vision of God isn't until the next life. It matters even in this life because the 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 person who who is drawn into the grace of God uh, experiences changes. Uh, there is there is a difference in this life, but there's another matter. The evolutionary argument: Well, we'll live longer if we have uh, if we believe in God. Let's think about that. It presupposes several steps. First of all, we would have had to evolve so that unless we have a sense of a certain kind of meaning, um, we're not going to be happy and live long. And we're, and for some bizarre reason, this is going to have to be some kind of meaning that is not attached to anything in this world. And uh, so we make up some belief and uh, and call it God, and then we'll live longer. Well, why not just have genes for living longer? Why not skip all of that? You know, the the uh, the uh, evolutionary ethologist uh, um, E.O. Wilson made an argument like this in one of his books. He said he said he thought there was a God gene, and he said we have a God gene because it. It um, because belief in God unites the group, and if unite the if you the group is more united, then um, then uh, you know they're they're going to be able to pass on their genes better. Um, well, I I think that that arguments about adaptation explain a lot of things. I don't think it explains this because wh- you know why not just if instead of saying. First, we have to evolve so that if we don't believe in, unless we believe in God, we won't be united, and we need to be then, and so then we'll believe in God. Why not just have genes for being united? Why not just skip all of that? That that makes more sense to me. 
well, one argument would be that there are different paths by which evolution solves a particular problem, right? So, so you could have genes for better cooperation instantiated in one of several ways, one of which might be through greater religiosity. But okay, that's fine. Let me ask you this then, uh, and I'm not... This is not a, I'm not putting you on trial for your religiosity. It's just really a, a, a fun conversation. No, I don't think you're putting me on trial. Uh, thank no. you. Okay. Okay. Uh, so I spoke earlier with Dennis. Are you familiar with Dennis Prager? Do you know who he is? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's a, you know, a, a conservative uh, radio show host. Uh, he's, you know, uh, you grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. He's now, I guess, maybe a bit less orthodox, but still very much practicing. Yeah. Now, if you go to him, he's going to tell you that, yes, of course, Judeo, Judeo-Christian values, so both are together, but there is a unique path that comes from his religion. Now, if I, now, by the way, I'm, I'm also Jewish. Uh, if I go to you, well, you might both agree that God exists, but there is a unique path that is available to you that's not available to him. Now, it turns out that there are at least 10,000 documented religions. Depending on how we splinter it, that number could come up to a, a lot higher than 10,000. What they all have in common is they all have the unique path to God. So 9,999 must be completely wrong and liars and defamers and, uh, you know, miscreants. And only one is right. Who is it? Is it the Shinto? Is it the Shia Muslim? Is it the Sunni? Is it the Jew? Is it the Catholic? So do you see the contradiction here? I, I see I see what you're saying, but I think that that, that, that doesn't frame the question correctly. Okay. First of all, all these, all these 10,000 different religions... They don't uh, in in for one th for one thing they don't all believe in God. Theravada Buddhism sure. denies the existence sure. of all supernatural entities. Um, now Theravada Buddhism is is certainly interested in a certain fundamental problem of human life. It says it says the problem of life is is uh, is suffering and suffering has arises from desire and desire arises from the illusion of being a self and you're really not one, and you have to be annihilated. You lose that illusion. Well. Um, you know, uh, Christianity and Judaism both have a different have a different view of this. The problem, the, the human suffering, is is about alienation from God. Now, one can one can consider these kinds of things. One can consider some of these things rationally, even before getting getting to revelation or any or a divine revelation or anything like that. One can can say. Suppose that uh, that I do have the illusion of being a self. Then am I going to be happier if I if I if I lose that illusion and I'm annihilated? Well, if I'm annihilated, who is it that then, that is then going to be happy? There is a problem there. You know, this is a logical problem. The, now, as to um, as to the relationship between Judaism and Christianity that you mentioned, now this can be disputed, and I know Jews and Christians disagree about this. But of course, but of course, Christians don't don't regard Judaism as a wholly unrelated religion. They regard it as the older brother religion, right. and that uh, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of the of the uh, of the Old Testament promise, uh, prophecies. We we make use of the Old Testament. We believe that this is that the stuff in the Old Testament is true and authoritative. Um, I have, you know, I have a lot of uh, Jewish colleagues who, whom, with whom I've, I've uh, corresponded and I've talked. Who, um, you know, we have, we have lots and lots in common. So it isn't as though, so, so, so do people follow a different, a thousand different conceptions of God? They don't even all talk about God. Do people have a thousand different solutions to get to God? Some of them are trying to get to God. Uh, they are, they're trying to annihilate themselves or something. Are all of these, are all of these religions completely unconnected? Judaism and Christianity are not entirely disconnected. Now I concede that. 
just philosophical reasoning alone, I believe that I agree with Thomas Aquinas. I, uh, you even have some arguments about the existence of God in Aristotle and in Plato. Uh, I believe that philosophically we can reach we can reach conclusions about the existence of God, about his goodness, about his um, and about about uh, about his power and some of his characteristics. Um, and that right there rules thousands of different religions out, not in the sense that they couldn't say anything that's true. You said they're all completely wrong. Well, no, there might be a lot right. of good things in them, but, but, but some things are going to be wrong. That rules a lot of possibilities out. And so as the, as the possibilities narrow, the questions to be answered by what reason can't tell. The, re, the, question, the, the, thing, the questions that would have to be answered by divine revelation become narrower. Now, I, now let's think about it. Let's think about revelation as, as, a, as, a, as a question in itself. Is it, uh, if there is a God, <laughs> uh, and I'm claiming that that can be demonstrated even before we get to revelation, but so let's suppose there is a God, then uh, do, we, do we need revelation? I would say yes, because we can't figure out everything we need to know. We argue about it, and we, we can't figure out everything we need to know by our own powers. Um, would, uh, if this God is good, and he created us, would he know that we need it? I should say that he would. Therefore, um, and, if, and if he's good, wouldn't he therefore want to provide it? Sure. So it's possible. Uh, you, can, you can go through various steps about this, and I think that you can demonstrate not that revelation is proven like a mathematical theorem. This is not philosophy. I wouldn't deny that there is a, a step here of faith, of trust, but you can show that it's not unreasonable. Let me give an analogy. Here I am, I'm in a burning building. I'm up on the fourth floor and there's all this smoke and I can't see the ground and I can't go out the door, it's burning that way. I, I'm afraid to jump out the window, I'll break my neck. And I, but I do open the window and I hear some voices down below and they say, Budzhishevsky, jump. <laughs> and I say, I can't jump, I'll kill myself. They say, we've got a net. And I say, but I can't see you. And they say, it doesn't matter, we can see you, jump. Now, is it reasonable for me to jump? I think it is. On the other hand, does, that, does the fact that it's reasonable mean it's proven like a theorem and I don't, I don't need to actually take a step of trust? Of course, I have to take that step of trust. So the metaphor and that's what it's about. The metaphor here is jumping into belief, basically into the pool of belief. Jumping, but it's not an unreasonable right. jump. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's not. People sometimes contrast faith and reason. Right. Um, I agree with John Paul too. He said. He said faith and reason are like the two wings of a bird. It needs them both to fly. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, Stephen Jay Gould, uh, and I don't know if do you know his uh, Noma principle. Are you familiar with that? Non uh, I, I, I may know it under a different name. I, I know I know I know a lot of Stephen Gould's ideas in general, punctuated equilibrium and this. And yeah. That. So sure. no, but this this is uh, so this is in reference to the tension between science and religion. Now, of course, you've got some people who say these cannot be reconciled, and that's yeah. it, right? Uh, on the other hand, you, someone like Stephen Jay Gould tried to be an accommodationist by by proposing his Noma principle, which is non-overlapping magisteria. Which oh yes, right? okay, okay. You, I know the expression non-overlapping magisteria. I just didn't know the the Noma abbreviation. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I do know about this. Uh -huh. So, so in that sense, what he's trying to do is really, uh, you know, there's a lot of caustic people who say it's this or that. Now, I wonder, if do you think that he actually believed that or he was just trying to build bridges between different groups? I, mean, I, I don't know. know. I don't know. I really don't. I really don't know. I, I don't. The idea of non-overlapping magisteria does not uh, does not appeal to me. 
though. It doesn't make sense. I mean, look, um, um, Judaism, Christianity, they're making truth claims. They're either false or they're true. You can't say that you can't say that the two domains don't overlap. Yeah. Uh, Any plausible faith is going to have to be reasonable. If somebody if somebody's faith says, well, God told me two plus two equals five, I'm going to say, you know, get out of here. I'm not going to say, well, the, the, the magisteria are not overlapping, and maybe two plus five, two equals five in the religious realm, but it does not equal, equal, equal five in the realm of logic and philosophy and science. You know, I wouldn't buy that. I say, there's, this was an idea in the Middle Ages. This was very popular at one point at the University of Paris. It was called the Two Truths View, that something could be false according to science or false in fact, but true according to the faith, and you could somehow hold them both. Right. Well, we can't be schizophrenic like that. You know, we have to live an integrated life. Our minds are one mind. We live in one universe, and uh, and I think that uh, that um, that um, that all truth ultimately is uh, is has to be has to be one truth. Got you. Uh, what I know that right now you're on the tour to promote this book, and again, people should go and check it out. How and how not to be happy coming out i think march 1st is that right that's right yeah uh are there any other books that are or projects that are simmering in your head that you'd like to tell us about um yes uh <laughs> this one <laughs> won't surprise you i you know i'd 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 uh, i'd written you'd mentioned that i'd written a couple of commentaries on uh thomas aquinas yeah I'd written about his 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 doctrine of law and natural law and his doctrine of human virtue what are the virtues? What are the good traits of moral character? I talked about about his treatise on happiness and ultimate purpose. And, you know, I keep going back earlier and earlier. Well, what he started with was, of course, the doctrine of God, the theory of how can you demonstrate that there is a God? Is this even a question that's open to reasoning? Uh, how do you do that? Can you say, OK, he exists. Can you say anything else about him? So I'm doing a commentary on that right now. That's going to take a long time with all this stuff with this book. It, it it's very hard to you know to carve out the time to work on that. I'm sure that that oh, yeah. you're very busy. You do the podcast. You you're teaching. You do you do scholarly work. You, you know how that is when you've it's got this. Unbelievable. It's it uh, unbelievable. You know, it's I, I I often tell my wife that you know I I have three four careers that each of which would be stressful enough, and I somehow find the time to do all of them. But again, I think to link it back to the topic of your book, it. The reason why I do it, the reason why I'm incorrigible in my work ethic is because it brings me happiness because I get well, excited. You know what I mean? Now, of course, oftentimes I'm overwhelmed or sometimes mm-hmm. I'm overworked, over- but I have a childlike appreciation for all of these different initiatives that it makes it difficult for me to walk away from them, which leads us back to this idea of purpose and meaning, right? Yeah, I didn't need to have this conversation today, but to me, not having it would have been a lot worse than having it. Right? <laughs> yes. Right? And, yes. But it's really that level of innocence. It's approaching life with this kind of wide-eyed wonder, and uh, I think that's one of my tickets to happiness. Yeah, I, I I agree about wonder. Wonder is the beginning of everything. You know, Freud used to talk about how how. We all had this libido, and uh, and if you suppress it, all these bad things happen. You know, I don't think Freud knew the had even the beginning of it. What what we really tra- I look around, and it doesn't look to me like people in our society are suppressing their libido. Uh, <laughs> what it looks like is that they're suppressing their sense of wonder. Yeah, 
Yeah. They're suppressing their longing for that, for that, you know, for that something else. They're suppressing the, their longing for the knowledge of the truth. And you suppress that stuff. You repress that kind of repression, I think, is much worse than the consequences of the repression of libido. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I wish I wish it were easier to get that across to people. And we, to link it, I'm sorry. Go ahead, finish your point. No, that that was it. People, you know, people. Uh, people. We sometimes think that we we don't have to live like human beings. We can just live on a purely sensual level. But you know, if somebody says, even if somebody says, like the Bloodhound Gang, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like <laughs> they do on the Discovery Channel. Right. Even if you try to live like that, you're not actually living like an animal. Yeah, right. No, because the animal isn't thinking about it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You have to invest this meaningless way of life with meaning or it's not even possible for you as a as a, as a human being. Yeah. And I, so there's something screwed up there. I'm I'm thinking just because you you know you you meant I mentioned wonder and then you you picked up on it. Uh, one of the things that I uh, always assigned for my doctoral students and if any of your students or any other students are listening to this then I hope that they'll appreciate it. Uh, there is a great paper that was written in 1971 by a sociologist of science. The paper was titled, That's Interesting! Exclamation point. And what he was trying to do in this paper is argue that there should be a set of criteria by which we measure how interesting academic research is. Because what most graduate students end up doing and what their mentors will teach them is how to be good methodologists right so if you're an ex if you're if you're an experimentalist how do you conduct experiments if you if you're a survey researcher how do you you know uh, make sure that you get at the phenomenon that you're trying to get at so so people become very good doers of science but that doesn't mean that they are doing interesting science and yeah so, and so to me and 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 he, he, he offers 12 different criteria, but all of which fit one general rule, which is, I thought this and it turned out that. So it's, in a sense, counterintuitive or surprising. But to me, I even go further back to kind of uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, one step, you know, first mover. My first move in deciding whether to take a project on or not is if I get the little tingling of excitement of wonder, I really need to find out what the data is going to show. I don't care. So, so as you said, the careerist stuff comes after, right? It's the, the fame, the publication is incidental to my original awe-inspiring aha moment. I really need to get to the bottom of this. Now, from a careerist perspective, they almost suck that joy out of you because publish or perish, you better. And so that's what puts pressure on people, not only to create banal research, but also to oftentimes engage in unethical practices, right? Because they need to get a certain number. So by removing this play aspect, which is something that I talk about in my next book, right? So I have a whole chapter on life as a playground, including science as play, right? What are, what are you doing as a scientist? You are solving a puzzle, right? There's a whole bunch of variables out there and I'm going to find which ones explain which other ones. Isn't that what children do when they play? Yes, yes it is. And and uh, we shouldn't stop playing when we're adults. We we have we have actually more interesting ways of playing. The, the philosopher Alastair McIntyre talked about um, certain virtues being sort of internal to things that you do to social practices. So that for instance, 
uh, you don't just play chess to win. You play chess for the exercise of competitive intensity and strategic imagination. And and I think you're talking about that in the practice of science and the practice of philosophy. There's got to be that wonder. That's There's got to be that spark. I tell the same thing to my students. I agree with you completely. Um, I, I say, look, I want you to... Um, I, I, I want you to write me, they, they want to do some project. I say, I say, give it to me in three to six sentences. I want to know, I don't want to know, don't tell me what you're going to write about. That's the first thing I tell them. Tell me what question you're going to answer or what puzzle you're going to solve or what proposition you're going to defend or attack. And then I want you to tell me why it matters. Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 I, and I say, and if you can't make it interesting to you, drop it. If you can't even make it interesting to yourself, it's not interesting. Exactly. It won't be interesting to your reader either. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a whole section of my website where I where I where I talk about this. How to be full and exact. I say it's a Bacon had said uh, had said uh, reading maketh a full man, writing maketh an exact man, and uh, conference maketh a ready man. Right. And uh, so I, I I so I talk about how to be full and exact, and that's one of that's that's one of my rules. So. <laughs> We would agree. Francis Bacon, we're we're talking about, right? Yeah, Fra yeah. I, I I recently. I'm not actually a great fan of Francis Bacon in most ways, but I think he was right about that. <laughs> I I recently did a, a, a an episode on my show where I just called from my personal library a whole bunch of uh, biographies that I had yet to read. One of which was one on Francis Bacon. So you you yes. reminded me that I need to go back and read it. Uh, <laughs> hey Jay, uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, uh, I, enjoyed it. I very much enjoyed it. Uh, again, to remind people, the book will be out on March first. How and how not to be happy. Make sure that you make Jay happy by buying copies of this book. <laughs> uh, a real pleasure meeting you. We'll say bye offline. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Cheers. All right.